Hello, welcome to this special holiday episode of the Victory Kitchen. Now, there is so much stuff out there about Christmas and wartime, it's a little overwhelming. So for this episode, we're going to focus on just a few aspects of Christmas in wartime America. We'll be talking about military packages, what Christmas menus look like, all different kinds of shortages. And then we are also going to take a little look at how Hanukkah was being celebrated during the war in America. So let's get started. Welcome to the Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. For this special holiday episode, we're first going to talk a little bit about packages for soldiers. That was something that was you know, thought of a lot because it was wartime and they wanted to make sure that their loved ones had something special for the holidays. I've seen so many advertisements and reminders for sending holiday packages to soldiers as far back as September and October in the year. And there was an emphasis on foods that traveled well, sturdy cookies and cakes, including tips on how to package them in the Good Housekeeping magazine, there was uh, the December 1942 issue. There was a really special uh, article called Christmas Boxes for the Folks Away from Home. And I like this article because it does focus on military, but it, you know, it mentions it could be for anyone that isn't near you um, that you can send packages to. It says, if you are planning to send homemade goodies to a boy in service in this country or to relatives or friends away from home, the following recipes are what the doctor ordered. We spent weeks in our kitchens checking recipes for many kinds of cake and cookies until we were sure we had an assortment that would be good to eat, keep well, pack easily, and travel safely. After making the color photograph opposite, we packed our collection as on page 142 and sent it parcel post special delivery on a 2000 mile journey. It arrived in good order, each cake and cookie intact in all its glory. Your boxes should do the same if you follow our packing instructions. I really love this. In fact, for a display at a World War II event, I created, like recreated this package that they're talking about. And um, I, a lot of people connected to that. They, I had the picture from the magazine that shows a soldier opening his box of goodies. And it's like they said, it's this beautiful color photo. And I'll have a copy of that in my Substack post. But uh, so I recreated that using the same recipes that they include in the magazine article. And they are very sturdy cakes and cookies. And um, one of my favorite loaf recipes comes from this article. It's for like a raisin and nut loaf and it's very festive. So uh, this, I love that they did this research, that they even made them all, put them in a box and sent them on this really long postal journey to, and then at the other end, it was great. Like they had survived. (laughs) So these are their tips for sending packages. One, allow ample mailing time, you know, like sending it in October. (laughs) Number two, club together on boxes. 
Um, so this meant like good spacing of the box's arrival between different family members or sweethearts uh, sending to the same person. Uh, they also talk about that you could do a cookie swap, like all the relatives get together, they make all these different cookies, or like a type of cookie, and then they swap and they fill these boxes with these different cookies. So kind of sharing the load. They talk about uh, the size and weight of the package, you know, not being too big. Then there's the packing of the box, which is very important. They emphasize this for making sure that the goodies arrive without being broken. And then they talk about wrapping the box. You need to mark it boldly, perishable, handle with care. And this actually reminded me of a a comedy sketch I saw. Um, This is done by Studio C. And they're a family-friendly comedy sketch troupe. But (laughs) there is this sketch they did called Overdue Military Letters. And it's of soldiers getting packages in the mail on the front lines during World War II. And it emphasizes the things not to mail. It's really funny. You can find it on YouTube. And I'll have the link for it in my Substack post as well. There is another article that I found, the Pentagraph from Illinois, dated 14th of December, 1942. And their article was called, The Box from Home is Welcome at Camp. It says, food in the box from home should be able to stand heat and cold, shaking and knocking about, and as much as 10 days wait in the mail, avoid delicate food that breaks easily or greasy, sticky, or moist food unless it is packed especially for safe travel. Uh, I thought that those were some really important tips that the Good Housekeeping article didn't include. They talk about how there's one woman who she molded these refrigerator cookie Uh, like the dough in a rectangular butter box. She sliced the cookies once they were firm and then baked them and then put them back in the box to ship the same box they were molded in, which was really clever. They have suggestions for a Christmas food box that you can send to camp. This is what they suggest you put in this box. Salted and spiced nuts in tight waterproof paper bags or tight tin boxes. Fruitcake baked and shipped in the same tin with a little inexpensive knife to cut it. Dried fruit or dried fruit candies such as raisins and dates stuffed with nuts or fondant. Sugared and stuffed figs. Dried fruit put through a meat chopper together and then molded in balls. Fudge poured out to cool in a cheap tin and then mailed in this tin travels well. Taffy or molasses candy individually wrapped in waxed paper is also a possibility. In fact, any homemade candies not too fragile, brittle, or soft are good choices to send. So I, I, I love these tips. It's great for if even today, like if you want to send goodies to family members on the other side of the country, uh, like in, this is the case in my family. So, you know, there's all these suggestions that we could make. And we have had my husband's grandmother sent us caramel at one year. So that was a really wonderful treat that we enjoyed. Another thing that people on the home front would do for soldiers is that children would make contributions um, via the Red Cross. And I've even seen articles where they're talking about scouts and other children's organizations. And what they would do is they would decorate Christmas menus. So the menu covers. So when soldiers would have their Christmas dinner, they would get a menu and inside one of these decorated Christmas covers from home. 
or just, you know, from children all across the United States. And there's this especially touching story in the Dunsmuir News from California, 15th of January, 1943. And it says, Junior Red Cross here thanked for menu covers. And it talks about how a citizen of the area, Leo Vicentainer, a baseball player for the Reading Tigers of the Northern California Baseball League, was stationed at Pearl Harbor and received one of these decorated menu covers from his hometown. He wrote back telling them how much he appreciated getting that little slice of home. It says, The Dunsmuir chapter of the Junior Red Cross, headed by Mrs. A.M. Hanavan, sent a number of hand-drawn Christmas menu covers done by members of the local organization to the Army headquarters before the start of the Christmas season. They were sent to Army outposts, such as Pearl Harbor, where Visitainer received one of them with his Christmas dinner. He wrote back to Tom Wheeler of the town. I'm sending you our Christmas menu, and Tom, if you will, thank the American Junior Red Cross of Dunsmere for the menu covers that they made and we happened to receive. Their menu covers made it possible for everyone here to either keep them for a souvenir or send one home to the folks. He sent not just the menu cover, but the menu too. Here's the dinner that was served to the members of Visentainer's organization on Christmas Day. They had shrimp cocktail, celery hearts, sweet pickles, lettuce hearts, Green and ripe olives, Thousand Island dressing, cream of tomato soup, salted wafers, roast young tom turkey, Virginia baked spiced ham, cranberry sauce, walnut dressing, giblet gravy, candied sweet potatoes, green peas, whipped Irish potatoes, uh, and it goes on, hot mince pie, fruit cake, ice cream, assorted mixed nuts, apples, oranges, assorted hard Christmas candy, cigarettes and cigars, hot sweet rolls, butter, chilled dull pineapple juice, and black coffee. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and this is pretty common. Like if you, I've looked at various uh, military menus for Christmas and they're, they pretty much follow this pattern. Maybe some things are a little bit different. Like the soup might be different or the meat, the main meat might be different. Usually they have both turkey and ham. Yeah, it's, It's great. They had all of these things away from home. And it's pretty amazing that a menu cover from his hometown actually made it to him because, you know, as it said, it first went to the the Army headquarters and then sent to Army outposts all around the world. And, you know, he just happened to get one from his hometown. That's just coincidences like that are just so fun. You know, and speaking of these wartime Christmas menus. You know, these soldiers' Christmas menus typically mirrored what was traditional at home. I found this ad. I've seen this ad quite a few times uh, in various women's magazines. This particular one is from the Good Housekeeping December 42 issue. And it is an Armor and Company ad, and they produced meats. And of course, they have a very, uh, patriotic and festive message and what the picture is it's usually a soldier and he's got you know his food and this kind of holiday spread in front um but on his tray you know he's got his food and stuff that are you know christmas meal and um and then it shows menus for the arming the navy and the marines of what each of them are having on christmas day The ad says his Christmas dinner will have all the trimmings he loved at home. Uncle Sam will be a genial host over the holidays. 
This Christmas, millions of men in service will find their holiday dinner as bountiful as they enjoyed at home. But only the trimmings make the Christmas dinners shown here different from their everyday meals. Nine out of ten men in uniform are getting better balanced, more nourishing meals than they ate in civilian life. For example, Uncle Sam sees that they get plenty of the muscle-building meat they need, a pound of meat per man per day. Because Armour and Company and the other packers have such great facilities, they are able to rush millions of pounds of meat every day to our armed forces. Every kind and variety of meat, from Armour's clover bloom turkeys for Christmas to star ham, juicy steaks, and hearty roasts for year-round meals. With so much meat going to our armed forces and vast additional shipments to Lend-Lease, our government asks civilians to share equally the meat remaining available. That's why every patriotic American will cooperate in the Share the Meat program by limiting himself to two and a half pounds per week. It is a way we can all help to keep our men in service better fed and maintain a strong, healthy nation at home. So I will also have an image of this on my Substack post for you to see because it is, um, it's such a great ad. And as you can see, like meat, you know, the, the choice types of meat were available for civilians, but maybe not as plentiful. Um, you know, the size that you're able to get, maybe it would have been smaller, like the turkeys would be smaller or just harder to get. Um, but they were available. So and Turkey itself wasn't rationed. So yeah, this is uh, a great example of this quote unquote share the meat program <laughs> that they were asking civilians to participate in so the soldiers could have that one pound of meat per man per day. Now, when it came to, you know, Christmas meals on the home front, it really depended on, you know, your own family's personal traditions, where you lived. I've seen some menus that really have a heavy emphasis on seafood. But I think generally the typical meal involved either ham or turkey as the main course. And then there's sweet potatoes, green beans. You know, it, it really hasn't changed much <laughs> that I've seen. But I did find this one particular menu in the Chicago Tribune from December 1943. Its the headline is, Baked Ham is a Menu Idea for Christmas. And then for dinner, I guess along with the baked ham, it suggests frankfurters with hot potato salad, cooked spinach, carrot sticks, celery, enriched bread, fruit cup, cookies, milk, and coffee. That seems very light. Like there's not even a really fancy dessert like we associate, at least in this menu, but I have seen it in other menus where they have like cakes or pies. The frankfurters with hot potato salad is excellent. I, I highly recommend that. And because it's hot, it's a nice winter food. <laughs> so anyway, so this was just one menu. If you go on a hunt, you will find many, many menus. Uh, they're in wartime era cookbooks, usually like the bigger ones. But if you just hunt in the newspapers, oh my gosh, just never-ending ideas. And women's magazines. If you get the November or December issues, usually there's lots of talk about December, Christmas, holiday foods. The one overarching theme that you see in these wartime, holiday, Christmas, especially like menus in women's magazines and in the newspaper is that you can still have a festive, fun holiday meal with your family, despite the restrictions. 
And that's where all these tips come in that they give of ways you can celebrate with what is available. Now, with all of this, you know, feasting for the holidays, there were shortages. And we, t- I did mention a little bit about, you know, meat was in shorter supply. There were many other shortages that they were coping with. One of them is not actually food related, but it is Christmas related. And that would be Christmas trees. And the reason for this shortage, you know, was some familiar reasons, transportation problems and labor problems. In uh, the Salt Lake Tribune from October 1943, they give a very good rundown of the basic problems. It's uh, an article about a shortage of Christmas trees for Utah, explaining that wholesalers were expecting a 20 to 25 percent reduction in 1943 compared to 1942 of available Christmas trees. It says approximately 90% of the Christmas trees sold in Utah are imported by rail and truck lines from Washington, Oregon, Montana, and Idaho. Only 4,000 native trees were sold in 1942. So the ones that were growing in Utah. And there was some trees that also went to waste because they didn't arrive in time. And that makes sense with all of the hugely increased railroad traffic. It continues, freight cars hold 4,000 trees each, but with railroads already overburdened with war shipments, it is unlikely that Utah's four tree wholesalers will be able to secure many cars. Truckers face similar problems. Even though freight cars can be assigned for transporting trees, labor needed for cutting trees will be extremely scarce. So, you know, many of the laborers who cut the trees in previous years were seasonal laborers and were hard to get. And... You know, we've talked about this with, you know, food farmers had the same problem. So it was just any seasonal labor was hard to get. A final blow to Christmas trees for the U.S. actually came from Canada. The article says Christmas tree purchases in the United States ordinarily average 10 million annually, with half of these imported from Canada. However, Canadian growers are denied both labor and transportation facilities for Christmas trees which will mean a sizable shortage throughout the nation, wholesalers report. And this trend, these trends that this article is talking about were echoed in a lot of states around the country. And it's interesting that, you know, Canada, maybe they weren't allowing any facilities or, you know, transportation or labor devoted to Christmas trees just at all. It wasn't maybe a priority for them. You know, even though this was kind of a problem around the country, It seems that not all states had this problem. It really depended on where you were. In the merchandise ads column of the Lansing State Journal from Michigan from December 43, there are no less than 12 sale ads for Christmas trees. So that's just for one area, Lansing. And then in the Dayton Daily News from Ohio, also from the same time, there are 22 ads for Christmas trees. One, interestingly, proclaims having 4,000 Christmas trees. Hmm. Remember how many fit into a a train freight car? (laughs) 4,000. And another one advertises having a special for defense workers. Christmas trees for $1 to $2 a piece. Well, that's nice. (laughs) They had a sell, especially for defense workers. Besides Christmas trees, there 
was a problem with candy. Candy was a very popular thing to get and to give for Christmas. And, you know, sugar was always in short supply and would be until 1947, you know, which made for a huge headache come Christmas time for candy makers and shops. They dealt with the problem in different ways, though. Having limited hours during the week or closing altogether for specific days. Some people complained about how sporadic candy shops hours were. Another tactic was self-imposed rationing on the part of the shops. In the Dayton Herald from Ohio from 1942, December, uh, it says excessive demand, rationing, labor shortage, and shipping problems have resulted in a serious shortage of candy, according to a survey of downtown confectionaries. Candy manufacturers have been rationed on sugar, chocolate, and butter for some time. Clerks in some stores are limiting sales of candy to small amounts in an effort to make the supply available to as many customers as possible. Which I think was a very kind thing because candy wasn't rationed, uh, but candy makers had a limited supply of sugar they were allowed based on previous year's sales. That's very kind of them to just make each customer can only buy a small amount so more people can have it. Despite the moaning about lack of sugar, there still seemed to be a lot of advertisements for candy, though. In an Indiana newspaper from November 43, it says, Christmas suggestion, the candy shortage makes candy the gift of the year. See our package selection. (laughs) That's almost like encouraging the problem to get worse. (laughs) In an Ohio newspaper from 42, there's an ad for Albers Supermarkets advertising Christmas candies, including Brilliant Mix, broken mix and plastic mix um miniature and assorted chocolates i'm not sure exactly what what the plastic mix is i'm guessing it's like maybe the type of candy like how it looks kind of looks like plastic i don't know and a broken mix just sounds like hey get this discounted mix of broken candy that i mean that makes sense (laughs) but i don't really it doesn't explain Then there's another article from Oregon from December 43. It says, Now is the time for all good family cooks to come to the aid of Santa Claus, who this year, even more than ever, will limit the number of candies and sweets in his familiar pack. Cookies are the best answer to the Christmas candy shortage, and from all indications, it will be practically non-existent. Oh, so, I mean, that... That is a solution, you know, replace candy with something else that's sweet and yummy. And cookies are a great solution to that. This hints at the number one solution to the candy shortage, which is making candy and other sweets at home. Wow, the Dayton Herald just had a lot to say. So in, in the Dayton Herald from December 43, it says... This year, we are experiencing, for the first time, a real shortage of ca- on candy and several other Christmas treats. One of these is the candy cane. <gasps> no, not the candy cane. <laughs> you need not do without this sweet if you care to take the time to make them at home. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> it then gives the recipe and detailed instructions on how to make your own candy canes. But strangely, the recipe doesn't have peppermint. So I wonder if candy canes have not always been peppermint (laughs) or they just forgot it in the recipe. I don't know. But anyway, I'm not sure if I'm brave enough to attempt it this year, but maybe next year I will try this recipe for making candy canes. One newspaper stated, uh, this is from Connecticut, December 43. 
It stated that Christmas candy canes, always an essential for trees and stockings, are out. But imitations made of paper or cellophane can be had at fancy prices. <laughs> fancy prices. Uh, I mean, there's always that solution. It's sad you can't eat it, but at least you have the image of the candy cane that adds to the festive spirit. <laughs> Another article from California um, had recipe. Oh, it had four recipes for sugar-saving Christmas candies. It says, a box of homemade confections is a splendid Christmas gift for friends on the home front as well as for boys in the service. Besides, there is much more of the personal touch in a present you have created than in one purchased. If your holiday goodies are to be sent some distance, make the kind that keep well, pack easily, and are good travelers. An interesting little side note is that candy wasn't just sent to soldiers for the holidays. In a California newspaper from November 1944, it states that state faces shortages of Christmas candy. The Christmas candy shortage is reflected in the efforts of the State Bureau of Purchases to obtain 14,530 pounds for inmates of state institutions. The Bureau reports only 700 pounds have been obtained to date. So that's interesting that they would send Christmas candy to inmates in prison. The next shortage was chocolate the beloved chocolate you know the same challenges existed for chocolate that it did for candy chocolate was scarce which made it even more trendy to give as a gift (laughs) i think just like candy that would just make the problem worse uh candy makers faced an uphill battle to fulfill the holiday the holiday demand And the New York Times from the 30th of December, 1943, it says a drastic shortage of chocolate candy for civilians caused by an unprecedented holiday demand and a mounting combination of shortages was reported yesterday by manufacturers and distributors. To meet the situation, retail stores have cut down their already curtailed business hours. Christmas shopping depleted a supply limited not only by rationing and materials and labor shortages, but by the heavy October buying for early mailing overseas. In their systems of self-imposed rationing, manufacturers and distributors have set little or no restrictions on candy going to members of the armed forces. A civilian allowed no sweets or only half pound or pound for himself has in most instances been able to place an order bound for a military post or encampment. This, to a large extent, has accounted for the current shortage, as most companies reported that 80% of their manufacture has been sent to persons in the services. So this was interesting that while civilians were only allowed a small amount, if they were sending it to a soldier overseas, there was no restriction. So it's similar to candy. (laughs) To try and mitigate complete chaos and lack of supplies, shops had very restricted hours some days being closed altogether. They also greatly reduced their different lines of products, instead focusing on a few quality lines, which were the ones that could be produced with the least labor and with the available materials. The biggest problem they dealt with was described by a manufacturer's spokesman. First, he said sugar was scarce, then chocolate, then there developed a shortage of corn syrup, and now an acute labor problem. So just like many, many things on the home front, labor... And the availability of products were just restricted. Another iconic feature of Christmas time is Christmas lights. And during wartime, this wasn't any different. 
there was not necessarily a shortage, but there were restrictions. It depended on where you lived and on local decisions on whether Christmas lights were allowed or hung in town. When we look at newspaper articles about this aspect of wartime, we need to pay special attention to the date and the state in which it's being written from. Because typically the states on the coasts were probably the ones that were experiencing more of these blackouts and light restrictions as opposed to further inland. So one example of this is in the New London Evening Day from Connecticut dated October 1942. And it says, in furtherance of orders received from the administrator of the State Defense Council, the following orders are issued relative to Christmas lights. Christmas lights may not be used as display lighting in shop or store windows so as to increase the amount of illumination beyond a maximum necessary for protection from burglary. Christmas lights may not be used in the windows of private homes or other buildings. Outdoor Christmas lighting may not be displayed. And the result was that they would get fines and penalties. Eh, bah humbug. <laughs> but there was there was a reason for this. Um, oh, they also said that these regulations shall take effect on 12.01 a.m. October 26, 1942. So, you know, maybe it's not a new thing that people were decorating for Christmas at the start of November. <laughs> people make such a big deal about it now, but maybe, maybe that was a thing back then, too. In... Another Connecticut newspaper from December 1942, there was a Ready Kilowatt ad. And this was kind of a caricature, caricature cartoon electrical boat looking guy that symbolized the electric companies. And it says, no Christmas lights this year? Of course there will be Christmas lights. Not the kind that hang on wires over streets in the shopping areas. Those are out because the War Department wants no night sky glow. But there will be Christmas lights, the kind that shine in the eyes of men, men who love freedom so much they're willing to fight for it. There will be the kind of Christmas lights that burn in the souls of women doing their part at home while their men are on the fighting fronts. Yes, there will be Christmas lights this year. They'll be the kind that throw a gleam of hope into the hearts of men once free but now in chains. The once free men of France, of the Low Countries, of Greece, of Norway, of Poland, and all the rest— these are the Christmas lights we'll have this year, and they are the lights which lead the way to victory, when we can again have our other Christmas lights without fearing a glow in the night sky. That is an interesting perspective on the matter. So in Connecticut, it's clear Christmas lights were not okay, but Christmas lights could be found other places. But in North Carolina, the attitude was different, and this is still a state on the coast, but in December 1942, the same caricature, Ready Kilowatt, said, So many things are different this Christmas, but thank goodness we can still have our Christmas lights, says Ready Kilowatt, your electrical servant. Yes, you may still enjoy cheerfulness of your Christmas lighting decorations, but please connect them so they may be easily turned off in event of an air raid alarm. So let's put up our Christmas lights right now. They'll help make up for so many of the things that are missing this year. They'll help make this Christmas another real Christmas in a land where we may still celebrate the birthday of the Prince of Peace. Huh, so yeah, so they could have Christmas lights there. In Austin, Texas, however, they were concerned about offending sensitive people, especially those who had lost loved ones in the war. The Christmas lights symbolized cheer and joy, but could be startling to someone in mourning. So they pulled their residents. 
And the conclusion was the Christmas lights would shine for the holidays. It says the soldiers over there would be the last ones to say there should not be any Christmas lights for the relatives back home to enjoy. Joe Dacey, a spokesman for the city council said the lights in addition will provide a real Christmas atmosphere for the thousands of soldiers stationed near the city, far from their homes. However, uh, in the same article, um, it talks about how a University of Texas professor declared that the lights were tomfoolery and that people were acting like there wasn't a war on. The mayor responded, I think every person in Austin knows there's a war going on and many people here are making great sacrifices. Some have lost sons or other relatives in battle. It is not the intention of this council to offend the sensibilities of any person in ordering that the Christmas light should be turned on. We hope they are accepted as a booster of morale on the home front, a symbol of the birth of Jesus Christ and a spiritual victory for all the world. If bereavement falls to anyone during the time the Christmas lights are on, the council hopes the display will be accepted in that spirit. I thought that this was a very interesting article about how some people were torn about whether Christmas lights should be on or not because of wartime. In the Fort Lauderdale News from Florida from November 43, they have another aspect that people were considering. Fort Lauderdale was torn about the decision, but in the end opted for not having Christmas lights on the main streets in town, citing the government's request for fuel conservation and the lack of labor and lights, light bulbs available. A lot of people felt there was enough power for the lights and how important it was for morale. So yeah, they were still kind of torn. But in the end, decided no. The Brownville Herald in Texas, they all, uh, also polled the residents in 1943, December. All of the similar sentiments were stated, but some new ones came to light, including the concern for power. A few of their statements read, okay, if the power is available or if the power is not needed for industry, put them up. And a man named Henry Bell said, sure, I'm for the lights. WPB, which is the War Production Board, says new material cannot be used. It's silent on old materials, so by all means, put the lights up. There's also a beautiful ad in the Boston Globe from December 44. It was a Noma Lights ad. They produced Christmas lights. It says, we'd heard all about it, that we'd see with delight the big twinkling carpet of a city alight. So long we've waited, still in the dark seen only the blackness and heard the guns bark but christmas is coming and with it the thrill the message of peace and to all men goodwill for one night will come when all men are free as the whole city twinkles for sister and me and it shows these two children in their pajamas looking out over the city of twinkling lights with their glittering christmas tree with presents underneath um it really is such a pretty ad <laughs> um and such a very heartfelt poem and finally in the park county news from montana dated december 1944 there was a montana power company ad it says christmas light symbols of home hope and peace in many countries this year there will be no christmas lights there will be only misery and destruction people will be homeless in america the christmas lights as always will shine for home hope and peace americans are fortunate they live in a land where individual rights have been encouraged and respected, where people are free. As long as Americans keep their liberty, then Christmas lights will never be dimmed. Uh, this is a nice sentiment, I guess, but that's not true. <laughs> In some cities across the country, they were dimmed. Um, 
And I feel like this ad smacks a little bit of like patting oneself on the back. Uh, America's so great and fortunate. You know, we <laughs> we live in a land where individual rights have been encouraged and respected. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, you can understand. You can see from these various articles and ads that you know that patriotic fervor was very much linked to the freedom of religious expression and holiday spirit in Christmas time. And at this point, I'd like to talk about Hanukkah. I it tends to get majorly overshadowed by Christmas, but it's a holiday that shares a month with Christmas. And um, during 1943, Hanukkah actually fell over like the Christmas holiday as well. So I wanted to include this holiday because, like I said, it's the same time of year. I also wanted to acknowledge what was happening to the Jewish people in Europe and even refugees trying to immigrate to the U.S. but were being rejected. All of their religious holidays must have been such a comfort in such a dark time. So looking for things about Hanukkah in wartime, um, especially in the newspapers, I found that the best place to look into the mindset of the Jewish community with their commentary and thoughts about World War II is in Jewish newspapers. Like the one in particular that I found was the Buffalo Jewish Review. I know there are other resources out there, but sadly, I was constrained by time. I But I'd like to share a little of what I did learn. I also consulted with a Jewish friend on Instagram, Leah. She's at the Yiddish Socialist, spelled S-E-W-C-I-A-L-I-S-T. Um, she studies this area of history. It was hard to find anything specific in newspapers in terms of recipes for Hanukkah or even special foods for Hanukkah. There are occasional mentions in standard newspapers about the Jewish people in the community celebrating Hanukkah. In contrast, I found way more foods advertised for Passover. And there is a reason behind this. What Leah shared with me is that Passover is a much more important Jewish holiday. Hanukkah was traditionally celebrated as more like a minor festival, but it gained much more popularity in the 1950s at the height of Jewish American assimilation because it's so close to Christmas. Passover had dietary restrictions, whereas Hanukkah did not. So the reason why we see all those food ads around Passover, which is the case, what I found, was what Leah explained as the novelty and convenience of being able to purchase packaged food that was certified as kosher for Passover. And I did see that even for popular brands like Campbell's Soup. They had four kosher soups that they sold. And when I tried to look for Hanukkah foods, it there just really wasn't any <laughs> that I could find. But they, you know, would use um, similar recipes like from Passover. Leah told me that the traditional Hanukkah foods are generally fried in oil. So latkes, sofganiot, which was uh, jelly donuts, and then taiglich which was a fried dough and honey syrup. I'm sorry if I mispronounced those. But anyway, they sound really delicious. One particular article stood out to me from the Buffalo Jewish Review from New York. This was dated the 4th of December, 1942. The headline is, World Appalled at Hitler Order for Annihilation of All Jews in Europe. Jewish Leaders Confer and Adopt Program to Combat Nazi Decree. 
Table shows decrease in Jewish populations in Europe in the past three years. It says, Appalled by the reports of the intensified mass extermination of Jews in Nazi-held Poland and other occupied territories, representatives of major Jewish organizations this week held a special conference under the chairmanship of Dr. Stephen S. Wise, at which it was decided to take the following measures. 1. Make public the documents of the Nazi annihilation of Jews in Europe, which were made available through the State Department, including the report of Hitler's recent degree ordering the extermination of all Jews in the Reich and in occupied countries by the end of 1942, which was obtained from high German officials. 2. Intervene with the U.S. government to take effective measures which would force the Nazis to discontinue their wholesale murder of Jews. 3. Invite the aid of Christian organizations ready to protest against the Nazi massacres of the Jews in Europe. 4. Proclaim a day of mourning to be observed by fasting and prayers by Jews in all the lands where Jews are still free. And this day was set for December 13th, uh, this day of mourning, uh, fasting and prayer. And in the headline, it talks about a table that shows the decrease in Jewish populations in Europe. And so that table is at the end of the article. And it is very, very sobering to see the huge change in the Jewish population. So um, in conclusion, (laughs) this might seem a depressing note to end on. But I think that it's an important shot of reality in the cozy patriotic Christmas fervor that is so well associated and documented um, in American wartime newspapers, commercialism, and magazines. While their attitudes might have seemed over the top with this patriotism, it begins to make sense when we look at it in a global perspective. There were some deeply troubling and sobering things happening around the world. Many Americans were suffering from grief, from losing loved ones to the war. But one thing we can see consistently is the message of hope, the push for normalcy, and to keep working hard so that all our boys could come home. And I found a particularly poignant article in the Enterprise Journal for Mississippi from November 1945. So this is after the war has ended. It's called The Christmas Lights Are On. The Christmas lights are on in Macomb, the blue, green, red, and yellow lights that swing across the business avenues of our city. The Christmas lights are on to tell our community and the world that the Yuletide is here and that thoughts should be mellowed by the approach of the year's choicest holiday. The Christmas lights are on to remind shoppers that if they wish to remember their dear ones, that now is the time, not the eve of the holy day. The Christmas lights are on to suggest that old hatreds be forgotten, ugly prejudices be dropped, old friendships remembered. The Christmas lights are on to say to the world that another Christmas is to be remembered with the guns silenced on the western and eastern fronts. The Christmas lights are on to suggest that the spirit of Christmas time is still alive after 2,000 years of recognition and despite the tragedies of the world. The Christmas lights are on to give occasion for praise, to remind us all that this is the approach to the time-honored holiday which marks the birth of Jesus. The Christmas lights are on to express in symbols the spirit that is felt in our hearts. May the Christmas lights gleam in your eyes. May the Christmas spirit abide in your heart. For the Christmas lights are on in our old hometown tonight. I think these are such beautiful sentiments and an important reminder to set aside those hatreds 
and prejudices and that friendships be remembered and to remember what's the most important thing this time of year, you know, being with family and celebrating, you know, whatever religious holiday that you happen to be celebrating. So happy holidays and Merry Christmas from me to you. And I hope that you have a wonderful season with the ones you love. This episode's cookbook feature is no feature because I just completed a 13-day countdown to Christmas with wartime recipes on my podcast Substack. I posted one ration recipe for each day. And so if you'd like to see all of those festive recipes, please head over to my Substack, which is victorykitchenpodcast.substack.com. And you can sign up for free. The recipes are just right there in on my main page. And you can see all the fun things I made. And there are some favorites for sure. I made Turkish Delight again, which was a favorite from last year. And I but I made new flavors this time. And then some caramel eggnog, jingle bread, uh, cranberry sherbet. And I mean, there's all kinds of fun things that you will want to try. They come from all different resources, cookbooks, newspapers, magazines. So I I do hope you check them out. However, we do have a home front highlight. And this comes from the Cameron Herald, which is a Texas newspaper. It's dated 23rd of December, 1943. And these are Christmas letters to Santa. I thought this was so fun. They're so cute. Um, These are all from Milam. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. County children. Dear Santa Claus, I am a little girl in the third grade. I am nine years old. I go to St. Anthony's school. Will you please bring me a stretchable bracelet, a ball bat, and a ring, a pencil box, and a storybook? Don't forget my brothers overseas and all the other little children and soldiers. Bring me some candies and fruits. Your friend, Rosalie Tomk. And here's another one. Dear Santa Claus, I want two sacks of marbles and a truck. I want it to be a big one. And please bring Elaine some house shoes. If you don't think I have asked for too much, I would like a football. With love, Billy Hal Clifton. Dear Santa Claus, I am in the second grade at school. Please bring me a little truck and a gun and an airplane, some fruit and candy. Santa, don't forget my little brothers and sisters. I would like a football too. Your friend, Marvin Rube. <laughs> I guess footballs were popular. Dear Santa Claus, I want a truck and two sacks of marbles. Please bring my mother something that will help her to get well. Aw. I am Billy Wayne Angel. Dear Santa Claus, I want a doll and a doctor set. My mother, Mrs. Giles Burnett, and my daddy, Giles Burnett, I would like for you to remember them. Your friend, Alien Burnett. Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) Dear Santa Claus, I want a set of dishes. This is all I want, but my sister wants a nurse set. I don't know what my mother and daddy want, but please bring them something that you think they would like. With love, Rochelle Terry. Dear Santa Claus, I would like a pistol and some caps. I have a gun, but like to have some BBs. I would like a cap with some ear flaps. Remember Elva B. and Marvin. I would like for my two brothers in the army to have some cookies. Love, Billy Ross Thompson. (laughs) 
I feel like he could help Santa out with that last one. <laughs> Dear Santa Claus, I'm a little girl only 19 months old, but would like to have a doll and a little wooden pole train. Please don't forget my mommy and daddy and also my three uncles in the armed service. Your little friend, Francis Marie Matula. <laughs> That's so sweet. S something tells me that uh, someone's parent was writing the letter for them. <laughs> Dear Santa Claus, please bring me a football, a truck, and some fruit and candy. I have been a good little boy. Don't forget to bring my daddy, mother, and teacher something. Your friend, Louis Garrick. Aw, he remembered his teacher. <laughs> That's so sweet. Teachers are hard workers. Merry Christmas to all the teachers out there. Dear Santa Claus, I am not asking for much in this war times. All I am asking for is a truck and a sack of marbles. Please remember all little children. Bill Eichinger. And finally, dear Santa Claus, please bring me a doll and a doll bed and a little dresser, a set of dishes, a little broom and a mop so that I can help my mother keep house. Joe and Biscop. Aw, that's so sweet. Anyway, I just thought these were so precious. Wishing you all a wonderful time of year. This is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about Christmas and wartime. I seriously could not decide. It was so hard to decide what to make this episode about. There's just so much. So I didn't even get into Christmas ornaments and things like that. But anyway, maybe next time, maybe next year I'll make another episode. We'll see. Anyway, if you'd like to join me on Instagram, my handle is Victory Kitchen Podcast. And once again, on Substack, it's victorykitchenpodcast.substack.com. That's where I've migrated all my blog posts. So anytime I have a new podcast episode, I put my corresponding post over on Substack. That way, if you're signed up, you'll receive an email when I have posted that again. So anyway, thank you so much for joining me and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.